You're listening to Tooth Be Told. For the latest updates, like our SPIU Alberta Facebook page and follow us at SPIU Alberta on Instagram. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back to the Tooth Be Told podcast. I'm Ying and I'm joined by Nick today. Hey, everyone. I'm happy to be back as co-host and I'm really excited for today's interview. Yeah. And in our first episode of the new year, we have another very familiar figure here at the School of Dentistry, Dr. Kula. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Kula. Good. Glad to be here. All right. Well, to start off, Dr. Kula, can you give us a little bit of an intro about yourself? Well, you know what sort of separates me from most people? I've had a very long career in dentistry. I've almost been at it for 50 years because I consider my first year of dental school, which is 1974, the beginning of my dental career. So if you do the math, well, we're getting close to 50 years. And during that time, I've had an opportunity to do most things associated with dentistry. I was in private practice for 20 years. I was an institutional uh, dentist. And again, that's an interesting experience. I was working at the provincial jail. So I was the jail dentist and I did that for half a day a week. And later on, then I was on the mediation committee. So I worked for the association. Then I became an educator. So then I went through that whole process, going to the university all the time and becoming an educator. And in there, I became a consultant. So the other thing I've done is is I work for an insurance company and I adjudicate claims Then after that, well, I started working for the National Dental Examining Board. So I've done that process too. So again, overall, because again, I've had a lot of years, but I've had a chance to do just about everything associated with dentistry. And it's been a wonderful journey for me. It's been very interesting, met lots of wonderful people and have really found, you know, after it's all said and done, people are people and teeth are teeth. And again, it's been a wonderful career for me. And I certainly hope it's going to be that way for most of you people. Yeah, for sure. That sounds like quite an interesting career journey you had there. Um, And we will definitely touch upon parts of it uh, during this interview. Um, So I guess uh, just to kind of follow up from like your intro there, would you be able to talk a little bit more about like the time you spent um, as a jail dentist, if you will? Yeah. Well, what happened is the way, first of all, I got the job is that I was uh, practicing in Fort Saskatchewan and the provincial jail is in there. And the individual that we bought the practice from, I had a partner in the, at that time, he actually had the contract to work at the provincial jail. So when he sold out to us, he gave me an opportunity to go work over there. And uh, I did that only for, well, it was, it was a day a week for a while. And then I cut it back to me like about five hours a day. But again, it's a wonderful, interesting experience. And again, it just shows you people are people and teeth are teeth. And, you know, unfortunately, when you are in the uh, working in the provincial jail uh, setting, most of those individuals are there because they lack social skills and job skills. And unfortunately, it seems like the only way that they can kind of get by is by uh, criminal behavior. And a lot of that has to do with addiction problems. And basically, they're just not very socially attuned to to be able to make a living. But, you know, again, when I did work there, and again, people are people, these guys need treatment. And most of them need a lot of treatment because that portion of the population, unfortunately, 
you know, I, whatever reason, they really quite neglect their teeth. So, of course, once they're in the provincial jail, well, they got nothing else to do. And certainly the government pays for it. And as a result, I would go over there. But most of the work I did there was extractions and that kind of thing. But, you know, they were very cooperative. I, I had over I did it for about five years. The number of times that I met somebody who was really very disagreeable was quite low. So, again, it was an interesting experience. And certainly, again, people are people and teeth are teeth. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And thank you for touching upon that. Um, We'll just uh, switch gears a little bit here. I know that you've told us and our class that you have lectured in Uganda. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit more about your trips abroad and your lecturing experience abroad? Well, unfortunately, I only had one experience, but it was a wonderful one. And what it was is a former uh, University of Alberta alumni whose name was Blue Cahoon, and he's since passed away, unfortunately, in a motorcycle accident. But he was a wonderful giving man. Anyway, so he went over to Uganda, and at that time, their university dental system was not very good. So he took it upon himself, and really, he was a one-man show. He went over there, raised money, and he was going through Rotary International, and they were kind of sponsoring it. But he did an awful lot. Uganda and a lot of places in the world don't have really good facilities, and they don't train very many people. The uh, population of Uganda is like 46 million, and they only have one school. In Canada, we're like 36 million. We have 10 schools, and they were only graduating about 70 people a year in a country of 46 million, and we probably graduate five or 600 when you consider the ones that come into Canada. And so we have lots of dentists in Uganda. They just don't have many at all. And so Anyway, so he invited me to go talk to because unfortunately, they don't have the resources that we have, uh, whether you're talking about materials and um, different devices and even sophisticated people to teach them. So I went there and actually I had a very nice week because they weren't very sophisticated with doing composite resin restorations. And certainly in this part of the world, then you guys have got a very good training as uh placing a, a composite resin. So I spent a week there and I spoke to them. And, you know, I, I, I hope I made quite a difference. You know, what I could see was wonderful progress. The people there were very eager. Fortunately, they all spoke English because I don't speak Ugandan. So that would have been quite a mess if they didn't understand me. But I think at the end of the week, we made some very good progress. They had uh, no experience with doing, especially bigger composites, class fours and that kind of thing. So that was good part. When I was there, I was fortunate. I had another week to myself. I did a tour and I went on a safari and I went out there and saw all the big games. Uganda is uh, sort of the backwater of Africa. If you go to Kenya or Tanzania, they got the the five-star safaris. Uganda doesn't do that. So you're in the back of an old vehicle and you go down dirt roads and you do everything. I even slept in a tent there. I mean, this was a tent, not, not like what they have in Kenya and that kind of thing, but it was priced accordingly. That was interesting. And the other thing we did was a, uh, a gorilla trick in Uganda, in the highlands there, they've got the jungle gorillas, the silverbacks. And so we went on that. Again, that's a wonderful experience. And again, it's a long ways away and it's really quite expensive when you go do the uh, gorilla track. But again, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. So dentistry allowed me to have a wonderful experience uh, working as an educator, 
then it gave me an opportunity to have a wonderful travel experience. And I kind of wish I could do more of that, but I, I guess these opportunities just come around once in a while. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, I know you've shown us some of the photos and the lectures we've gotten from you, and it is really cool to see some of the places that you've been to. Um, and sort of touching on that a little bit, um, could you talk about the people that you've encountered in different parts of the world and have anything sort of surprised you about that and what that whole experience has been like? You know, my, my whole experience has actually been very positive with all of my travels. You know, in, in I've been fortunate, not just so much in dentistry, and it's, it's my wife drags me. She makes all these bookings and she just tells me what day I'm going. She even packs my bag for me. So all I have to do is, you know, okay, let's go to the airport. But anyway, so I've had a, an opportunity to go through most of European countries. I've been through Russia, all through uh, Germany, Italy, all those places, also uh, Central Africa, and been to Asia, Turkey, and then into China, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, et cetera, et cetera. But the one commonality of all these trips, people are very nice. You know, at least everywhere I've gone, we've had, I just, I, I, I can't remember really a, a confrontation, something really bad. But that being said, you gotta be careful. When I was in Uganda, we uh, were staying in a lodge, we did a jungle trek, and we went for a walk. So they, at the lodge, we said, well, well, we'll take you for a walk, we'll have you a little tour around there. Well, anyway, so we go for our walk, and we have two fellows with us, and I think it's Joseph and Ronald, you know, the African guys. Well, they had AK-47s. <laughs> We go for a walk and they send us up and say, you've got to go with these guys. And they've got AK-47s because where we were, just on the other side of the river was the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And I guess they've had some incidents there. But fortunately, we never had it because we had these two guys with us. And, well, they never had to use their guns, but they brought them out. <laughs> so you had to behave yourself, Dr. Kula, then while you were there? Well, I do it everywhere. Well. <laughs> well, the, only, the only time I take some liberties is around dental students because you guys can't, you guys don't care. <laughs> so it sounds like you kind of would be then a big proponent of students like ourselves having more opportunities to go then on these trips abroad to provide dental treatment. You know, I, I certainly would really recommend it. If you get the opportunity, you should go. And there's, there's two big reasons. First of all, the need is great. You go to almost any of the third world countries and they're very dentally underserviced. You know, in Uganda, I think that was the second main reason that people went to the hospital there is for dental problems. You know, again, they just don't, most of the uh, dentists in Uganda actually work in government clinics. And most of the time, or a lot of the time they're associated with hospitals. But again, so the need is very, very great. And then it's a wonderful experience for us to give back to these parts of the world. And these people, let me tell you, they are appreciative because they know we have very valuable skills. And to them, this, this is really quite an opportunity because some of them really do suffer. I mean, in our part of the world, most of the time you can phone a dentist and, you know, you can probably get that lined up fairly quickly. But in that part of the world, it's not that way. I know that we had some of the dental groups that would go... Uh, the other parts of the world, people would start lining up at four o'clock in the morning to get in there. And there'd be like, you know, you show up at the clinic at eight o'clock in the morning and there'd be like seven or 80 people in the lineup. And some of these people were waiting for four hours. 
And that just goes to show you how desperate they are. We are very fortunate. We are blessed with the skills and the ability to help these people. I think we should help them as much as we can. You know, unfortunately, probably don't, we don't do it enough. But if you, if you get a chance, not just as a dental student, but when you finish, it'd be nice if you could kind of give yourself a week or two a year to go and help people in the third world. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really important part of dentistry is giving back. And hopefully with the COVID situation, like uh, me and Nick's year, we're able to go on these trips before we graduate as well. Um, We'll switch gears to talk a little bit about something else you mentioned during your intro. Um, Having been a jury member uh, in dental malpractice trials, what advice do you have for students to avoid having to go through the sanctioning process? I think what dental school doesn't really cover in the curriculum is some of the processes and things that you need to do when you finish school because, you know, we only have so much time available. So I think as when you get out of school, what really is important, and I think we all know this, it is important to do a good job because if you don't do a good job, there's going to be trouble for you and it's very, very uncomfortable. But the process that we use in Alberta, and of course, may vary in other parts of Canada, but if you ever get a complaint against you, it gets investigated. So it's not like people just tell the guy to go away. Like when you buy something on Amazon or whatever, you get mad. Well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do that? Is that Bezos going to go to your house? I don't think so. <laughs> but anyways, so again, when you do that, and they do investigate it. And so I guess what I, I really, you know, you guys, when you're in school, right from the very first day, it's very important to get your skills up, be very, very knowledgeable. And whenever you do any treatment, make sure you can defend it. And so just don't go and doing something unless you can, like, I mean, if anything ever went wrong, somebody said, well, why did you do it? Well, you have to make sure that you have a good evidence to why that is appropriate. So that would be number one. Then the other thing to, to prevent yourself from getting into too much trouble, you can't really explain things too much. I think you got to really make things real clear to the patients. What I think is is a good idea, we we don't do it enough. We're going to do it with the second year class this year, is we're going to do some Photoshop. And I think Photoshop is a wonderful tool. I spent some time learning how to do it. And if I was a dentist today, I would use Photoshop. You know, it prevents a lot of, um, you know, misunderstandings. Because you can talk till you're blue in the face. But if you can show somebody a a photo, and especially your own photo, it's way more powerful. So to me, being able to display things, especially work that you have done, not out of some something you Googled or whatever it is, which is, that's okay too. But I, I think it's more powerful if you can show people, this is what we can do. Uh, the other thing I think is very important is to get people stuck in writing. So when you do meet a patient and you're presenting a treatment plan, I always gave it to them in writing. I, we always broke down all the options and the costs of the options. Uh, the other thing I, I, I learned, and I think eventually you would too, is if it's a real significant treatment plan, don't rush a decision, either yourself or the patient. You know, make sure this is what you want to do. If it's something that's pretty straightforward, just a couple of uh, routine restorations, 
I don't, I think that's a bit of overkill. I'd still give them a written estimate, but you know, again, we can make that decision. But when you get into more complex treatment, you know, go at it a little bit slowly, make sure that everybody understands what the intent is and what the risks are. Because one of the things that when we get into dentistry, the more sophisticated it is, the more things that can go wrong and the more dramatic it is when things go wrong. I mean, you do a root canal on a tooth and the tooth spits and falls apart or whatever, that becomes a much bigger deal than you did a class three and it fell up and you got to redo it. You know, that's not really quite the same deal. But anyway, so it is very important because the dental associations will pursue that and you want to avoid that. And I think, you know, we have really good training for you you people. And if you follow that, I think you'll be okay. Because, you know, fortunately in our part of the world, um, patients are actually pretty good. You know, the number of dentists who wind up getting into trouble because they haven't done things, is really quite low. So I think that's a bit of a, a function of people are quite understanding. And it's also a function of, I think most dentists are doing a pretty good job out there. Not everybody, not every day, but most days. And can you give us just a little bit of a sense on how these trials are actually ran and sort of the process of it? Yeah. Well, I, first of all, it has to be initiated by a patient. So if there's ever a problem, the patient contacts the Alberta Dental Association. And then the Alberta Dental Association says, you have to send this assigned in writing what your complaint is. So once they receive that complaint, at that time, it was the registrar. He would read that uh, complaint to, to not get it up too high, depending on the, the nature of the complaint. He might just phone the dentist himself and say, you know, what is this all about? Now, if it appears that it's going to be something a little bit more significant, it's referred to what's called the mediation committee. And I was on the medi mediation committee for about four years. And what the mediation committee does, they will send a member out there and I will review all the information. I will review that. I will actually, most time I would have a, an interview in those days before COVID, my God, we could actually have meet people, but we would have a, an interview with the patient and really review their complaint. And then I would meet with the dentist and these were, were done separately. Our goal was to mediate a mutually acceptable solution. So, you know, depending again on the nature of it, you know, we do that. Because let me give you an example, the most extreme case. Sometimes these patients, the, the patients are unrealistic. So what the dentist did is he did a large restoration on the tooth. The tooth was sensitive afterwards. So I personally don't think the dentist did anything wrong. But this patient was quite put out. I mean, that this does happen to all of us. I mean, from time to time, there's not a dentist out there who hasn't had this type of uh, situation. Anyway, so the dentist, I, I think, made the correct offer. He said, I will pay for you to have a root canal and you can go to any endodontist you want. So it wasn't like he said, you got, I have to do it. And I will pay to have that tooth restored. And that was probably, and I know that I think that was the appropriate, I think it was a very generous offer because I don't think he did anything wrong. So if he said, I didn't do anything wrong, you know, I'm not responsible, but I think from a point of view of uh, patient relations, you know, if that's a gray area, me as a practitioner, I would do everything I can to keep the patient happy. We don't need that kind of bad publicity. So as long as it's not too uh, incredible, I, but anyways, this woman was unrealistic. So then she said, you know, 
I don't trust any dentist here. I have to go to London, England. You have to pay for me to go to London and England to get my treatment done. And I don't want to go anywhere else because I don't trust anybody. Nobody even in Canada. So, well, anyways, we couldn't really make her very happy. Anyways, eventually, I think we did settle for the lower, but she was unrealistic. You know, on occasion when we couldn't get a, sometimes, a, you know, the patient always can go through the courts. And that becomes quite expensive for everybody. On the mediation committee, we didn't have a lot of power to do anything for, to the dentist. But what we did have the authority and the mandate is if the dentist hadn't done things very well, we could refer them to one of two committees. There's peer review. They would just look at it and the peer review kind of looks at it and just tries to say, is it up to the standard of care? So you hear that term all the time. And the standard of care is how it should be done. We know what that is. Now, the other group that they can, we can send them to is if the person, the dentist, has really behaved unethically, then we refer them to the discipline committee. Now, these two committees have got a lot of power. They can take away your license. They can recommend suspension. They can recommend fines and all that kind of stuff. You, you, certainly we want to avoid that. And, you know, if we're doing a good job, we'll never have a problem with it. But you have to be aware that if you don't perform well, there, you know, are going to be very negative consequences. Another way that patients, if they're really unhappy, they can go hire a lawyer. And then the lawyer, they're going to sue you and they're going to serve you with papers. And that, I, I, first, I've never been sued and I haven't really been, you know, down that road, fortunately. When they do sue you, basically, you're going to get a lawyer to defend yourself because you're going to have to. And it's a big hassle. Uh, we do have malpractice insurance, but it doesn't really cover. If you do anything illegal, you're not covered. Like, for instance, if you go to work under the influence, you don't have insurance. We do have malpractice insurance and the CDSPI, they provide you with a lawyer. I, I do know some people who have been sued. And so what, what that process is, is the lawyers meet and they exchange information. It's called discovery. After discovery, the two groups present all their information and they try to determine, kind of get a solution. If depending on the information, you know, your lawyer is going to advise you and the other lawyer is going to advise the patient, they try to come up with a solution that would be monetary or whatever. Now, if they can't decide, then it goes to the courts. And again, that becomes very complex, very, very expensive. It's pretty extreme. We don't, we don't do that very much in Canada, fortunately. But again, that's kind of the process. Don't want to do that. Yeah. I know one of the big things that a lot of the teachers, including you, have sort of preached with that is just the importance of documentation and writing down everything that you've said to the patient and stuff so that you are kind of good when if, if, if and hopefully not, but if anything like that ever comes up. This is like, even in our own clinic, you go, I, I don't think you we do enough documentation. You should have a record of every dental conversation you have for the patient because it could become significant, especially when you first meet a person. Because, you know, people sometimes have selective memories. Some people will out and out be, they'll misrepresent things. You know, you can tell them, look, I'll do this big filling and it may not work and you might get a toothache. Well, they'll come back in two weeks later and they'll say, you never told me that. Now, if you haven't got it written down, it's very hard for you to defend yourself. 
But if it shows up in your records that you have cautioned this person, this was a high-risk situation, well, then you've done your job. You've done all you can. But if you have no records, you know, there's no evidence. Makes sense. So switching topics a little bit here, this is a bit of a big, broad question, but you can take it any way you'd like. How has your your view on the field of dentistry changed over your career? Uh, It hasn't changed that much. Hmm. You know, it's kind of interesting because, yes, I've been doing this for 50 years. 100 years ago, we used instruments to shape teeth, and then we used materials to restore them. That The big picture hasn't changed. Yes, we have better instruments and we have better materials now, but we're really doing the same thing. And in a lot of ways, dentistry is, I think, easier. Because if you look way back when, 100 years ago, the instruments they used were very, very crude and the materials, they weren't as flexible as what we have today. So if anything, I think dentistry is easier. There has been quite a shift in my career when the fluorides really hit big time. And we've been using fluorides in dentistry like for 100 years, but they really became widely used in the 60s in toothpaste. And since that's hit, decay rates have really dropped. So that's one of the big changes in my, my uh, career. For instance, if people of your uh, age group, if you brush your teeth carefully with fluoride toothpaste, you know, the decay rates are very, very low. There's the odd person who really has very decay susceptible teeth so that it's not 100%. So the big change I've seen is decay rates have really, really dropped. But there's still as many opportunities to treat people in terms of there's still lots of periodontal disease. We have aesthetic stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So, but, but in the big picture, I don't think it's really changed that much. Yeah. So in your opinion, what is the most important part of, about being a dentist? Uh, building patient relationships. People need to trust the profession. Because when you go see a dentist, just like when I go see a mechanic, he tells me there's something wrong with my motor, my car, and he puts his fancy tools on there. I don't know if that's true or not, because I'm not a mechanic. So if you look at the position of the average person, when they go to the dentist and they say, well, you need four restorations. Well, they need to trust us. And we have to earn that trust. And we have to deserve that trust. It's not an entitlement just because you're a dentist. One time they did some of these surveys and they were, they were saying, well, what group is the least trusted out there of professions? Number one was used car salesmen. People just didn't trust them. You know, they go in there and they tell you whatever they think, whatever you, they need to say, get you to buy that car. But for many years, another group that was not very trusted was dentists. Well, I I don't want to go into that too much, but I mean, if that's what people think they think, unfortunately, they know it's a conflict of interest because when you prescribe this treatment, you know, you're the big winner, you know, as a dentist, you know, you're you're getting work. And again, we need work. I mean, that's what we do is we need to fix teeth. So again, so getting back to the beginning, I've gotten a bit of a circle here, but I think the biggest thing is we have to learn the skills to get into a relationship with people. And I'm not talking about being manipulative. I'm talking about honest and earning their trust and deserving their trust. Yeah, it kind of comes back to that idea that we've been taught a lot. That's like, you never treat a stranger. So really just try to get to know them well and have that solid relationship. 
Yeah, and you know, that's a skill that takes time to really learn because not all people are the same. Now, if you look at someone who's very uh, successful, like in sales, because that's all you do is sell stuff. But as dentists, we have to sell dentistry. We always have to deliver it. You know, to be successful at it, you kind of have to read people. They're not all the same. So you can't treat them all the same. And again, this is a skill you have to learn. You got to be patient. Maybe read a few books. (laughs) You know, don't spend all your time on Facebook. Read a couple of books. One of the things that you did touch on earlier was something like Photoshop, which to the average person would be kind of looked at as a bit more unconventional of a skill for a dentist. Are there some other sort of unconventional skills that come in mind that come to your mind when you think of something that is important for a good dentist? You know, we don't even have to go into Photoshop. You know, most, uh, a lot of dentists out there really underutilize even just photography. You know, you, you guys don't realize, you know, when I first started to take a photo was a big deal. You know, I, I grew up at the time where you had a camera and you had film in there and you'd have to go send it out and you wouldn't get it for a week and all this stuff. And it was expensive. Like, you know, I go buy like I had a $4,000 camera and then all of these films and, and I take it in for developing. I get $200, you know, to develop these films. Well, now you guys can pull out your camera. I'm talking about your phone. I have an iPhone 12 and the photos on that, that's all you need. You don't need a $4,000 camera. Uh, and again, where a lot of dentists don't do that. And again, if you said to me, well, where's the evidence? Well, again, in my consultant's job, I've got dentists sending me photos and they're really lousy, you know, and I, I don't blame the dentist so much. I just kind of blame their education. Now, you guys, because we started you right at the beginning in operative dentistry, we learned how to take high quality photos. And I know you guys can do it because you've been trained to do it. And I expect that's what you'll do when you're done. But I look at how it's easy. It's cheap. It's wonderful um, documentation, number one. And the other thing, it's a wonderful way to show people, you know, what their problems are. And again, it's very much underutilized. So by an extension, Photoshop isn't that much more difficult. If it was up to me, I, I proposed it a couple of times to get it into the curriculum because I think it's worth it. And again, there's, it becomes, once you become proficient at it, it's good for patient education. It's good for treatment planning. It's good for communication with your labs. That's a really interesting topic that like, I think when we did our lectures on Photoshop, it wasn't something that we were um, expecting and we were quite surprised about it. But now hearing it from your perspective, I feel like, yeah, like that all makes a lot of sense. And yeah, so I guess we're going to talk a little bit more about your kind of experience as an instructor here at the University of Alberta. Um, So what is your favorite part uh, about being a clinical instructor? You know, my favorite part is the student's success. Because when students do things real well, I, you know, you guys are my report card. So my favorite part is to say, you know what? That's done real well. And that gives me more joy than anything else. And I hope that you're gonna, when you leave here, you're gonna go and use those skills to the best of your, and I'm very confident that you do. That's what makes me happy. I think I can make a real difference because when I train you real well and you go out there and you do a good job, well, I've done a good job for the next 30 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say it's the class of 2024. That's your favorite part. 
You know, <laughs> you know, I like every class. I've never had a class I didn't like. I've had yeah. some students I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> Very political answer. Yeah, we won't <laughs> name any names, but I guess looking into the future of the school, what would sort of be your vision for what the U of A dental school, I guess, is and could become? Well, you know, it's a pretty darn good program. I've had the opportunity. I've been to probably 10 dental schools. You know, I belong to an organization called the Consortium of Operative Dental Educators. So I've had an opportunity to go to most of the West Coast schools. Like I've been to Washington, Oregon, San Francisco, Los Angeles, as a Phoenix, Salt Lake, et cetera, et cetera. I've probably been to about a dozen. And, you know, our program's as good as any of them. You know, uh, we have good we have good materials. We have a wonderful facility. We have an opportunity to, to use the best of technology. The U of A is a good program. I'm not sure what we need to do better. When we first did our uh, redid the curriculum over the last seven or eight years, before that there were some problems because some of it was probably had too much content that wasn't very appropriate for dentists. Like before we had this curriculum, they would go and say cardiology, they do a block in cardiology and they'd have to learn how to read at EKGs. You know, I mean, what dentist is gonna do that? Then they even have to learn how to prescribe heart medications. Well, I hope no dentist is gonna do that. And anyways, we've managed to get most of that out. So we spend more time just learning uh, dental skills, which are much more appropriate for our group. You know, the program is pretty darn good. Probably the only thing that I think we are working on, or at least I hope we're working on, is I, I think at the last part of fourth year, I think it would be real nice if we had more flex time for people to do some, to grow in a certain area where um, something that they really like, say for instance, endo. So, you know, you've done your minimum requirements, but you really like endo and hopefully we could get you some extra cases there. Or if you like cosmetic dentistry, we'll get you some veneer cases and all that. But it really is a challenge because even though we recognize that it's tough to get to get everything in and then to find patients that are a good fit. So well, we'll do what we can. That's all we can do. That makes sense. Yeah. I know having been part of the new curriculum now, we've all really enjoyed it so far and the school has been so great so far um I, my next question then would be uh do you remember a lot of your students over the years and does anyone in particular come to mind when talking about being memorable you know it's funny you know what i don't do so well with names so <laughs> every year you get another 50 so i gotta start over again but you know i don't do well for me but you know i remember darn near every one of you you know in terms of when I, when I do uh, meet you at a later date and they say they were with this group or that, I generally do remember the faces and I remember some of the, the people in that particular class. But, um, but there, there's always some for, for whatever reason. Sometimes it's because they have similar interests to me. Like, for instance, if the guy, you know, got, you know, so I like to ski and I like to swim and bicycle. So a lot of times when people, some students say, well, you seem to talk to this guy quite a bit. Well, that, some of that's because we kind of had shared interests. And so that may be a little bit of that. But by and large, I remember y'all. <laughs> that's, that's sweet. Um, I will definitely maybe see you in the future and ask if you remember me. <laughs> 
But I tell you what's really gone a little bit difficult now. Everybody's wearing these darn masks. And especially now they're wearing these things over their hair and all this. Man, you you know, you can come walking up to me in the street and I wouldn't recognize some of you now because I don't even know what the heck you look like. (laughs) Very true. Um, So what is your fondest memory back in practice? Oh, my fondest memory. You know, I, I guess what it is, I, I have a lot. But my, my, my fondest memory is that it, once you're in practice for enough years, you know, they, they, they do become your friends. I mean, I've known some of these people, like, basically since the first day of practice. And then I get treating the next generation even. So they bring in their kids. Then they bring in their grandkids. I, I guess most of my memories isn't so much the dentistry. It's the people. It is very nice when you meet these people and they show their appreciation for what you do for them, even though you're getting paid. You know, we're not volunteers. You know, they, they do that by, by coming back. You know, that's when they, they show you they have confidence in you. They didn't. Well, they're going to go across the street in the drop of a hat. But I guess it's mostly the memories of all, all the nice people I've met over the years. And to sort of follow on that, do you have a fondest memory as an instructor here at the school? one outstanding one oh you know i i don't think so i can't say that because there's so many of them so to say that there's this one that was truly outstanding like a student dropped bed or something like that you know (laughs) i I, I don't know that nick (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if that'd be a fond memory but that's one i remember so if you drop dead nick i'll remember you Uh, well um lastly i know that you have uh participated in the berkey biner cross-country skiing marathon uh could you tell us a little bit more about that and what other extracurricular activities you engage in during your free time you know this is you know i really believe as a dentist and you guys i know are busy as students you need to have some passions in your life because work is very tough and we need to get away from work and one of the best ways to do that is, is to have a hobby. The other thing that I'm a firm believer is, as a dentist, we work in a very cramped position. And it's not very good for our health. It's not very good for our bodies. So I think you need to get some physical activities that you like to do and you can do like for many, many years. In that, then just to go, in, I think you need to cross train. You need to do different things. Like if all you do is run, you're probably going to wear yourself out, your knees, your hips, et cetera, et cetera. It's nice to have various activities. Right from the very first time, right after I got out of school, I've always worked out. Had some, like I swim quite a bit. And I, even now I swim four or five times a week. And when I go there, you know, I might as well stay for a while. So I swim quite a bit. About 20 years ago, I started, you know, I played hockey for years, but then Playing hockey always becomes a bit of an issue because it's tough to get a team going at good times. It's a problem. Whereas cross-country skiing, which I did get into, is a wonderful activity because you, as long as it's not too cold, like right now it's a little too cold out, but you can go on your own or you can go with a group. And I did have a, a foursome. There was four dentists that were all good friends. They become snowbirds, so I, I don't see them too much skiing anymore. But what it is, is cross-country skiing is a wonderful activity because it's low impact. So it, you, it, there's not a lot of injuries from it. 
And it's a wonderful full body workout because when you cross country, you have to use your poles and all that kind of stuff. So that gets you to use your upper body. The other good thing is when you're balancing yourself, it forces you to use your core and your knees and your small muscles. So it's a wonderful workout. But I go in the Berkey Biner and what it is, they have, it, it's every year, it's in February. I'm not going to do it this year because you haven't been enough time to train. But to do the full Berkey, it's 55 kilometers long. So, I mean, that's a really, I've done it three times. So, I, you know, I have done it. And I would have probably considered doing it if, if it wasn't so cold this year. But anyway, so as I, I always like to brag about, the last time I went in there, in my, my classification, there was 24, 25 people. I came in 24. So I'm not a loser. I beat one person. <laughs> Uh, oh yeah for advice to future students time in the sim lab goes a lot faster when you're talking to dr kula about random extracurricular things so <laughs> you should, we should do that because it is a lot of fun <laughs> all right well sadly dr kula that's probably all the time we have for now thank you so much for coming on this has been great and a lot of fun and we really appreciate it okay thank you very much See you yeah. next week. All right. Thanks, Dr. Kula. Thank hey guys, you. Thank you. See you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.